This message is a recording from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space to practice the ways of Jesus together as the multi-ethnic family of God. Um, Happy New Year once again. Uh, My name is Erin and my pronouns are she, her. Um, But as always, I'd like to begin with a land acknowledgement to honor the native people that existed here before us. I honor the first peoples of current day downtown Phoenix, the Thana Otham Nation. They were scientists of the environment and master dwellers of the desert, creating sophisticated canal systems to irrigate their crops of cotton, tobacco, corn, beans, and squash. They built vast ball courts and huge ceremonial mounds and left behind the red on buff pottery and exquisite jewelry of stone, shell, and clay. In the words of Lisa Sharon Harper, they were and are here. We see you. We honor you, and we thank you for laying foundations of harmony, balance, truth, and honor. Thank you for stewarding the land where Creator settled your people. We bless you. We bless your elders, past, present, and emerging. Well, today is significant for me because it is officially the beginning of my second year as a pastor here, actually. I know, crazy, right? And I love that I can wear this sweatshirt, listen to women preach in a place where I know we listen to women preach. How about that? Love that. And when I reflect on this, sometimes I still can't believe it. Me, a black woman, co-lead pastor of a justice-centered, liberating church. On top of that, today is MLK Sunday at Kaleo. My favorite Sunday of the year next to Juneteenth Sunday or weekend, whatever it is. MLK Sunday is significant for me because before I ever became a pastor here, it was the first time I went to church on the weekend of MLK Day and didn't just see a screen graphic of a, of a palatable, palatable quote. I didn't just, he didn't just get an honorable mention during the offering time to boost the giving. It was the first time I had ever been in a space of faith where the entire service was centered around commemorating the life and work of Dr. King. For three years now, we've spent our gathering time listening to a live reading of the letters from a Birmingham jail. Last year was even more special because the following day we joined Pilgrim Rest Baptist Church for the MLK March. And on the evening of that march, Kendall and I had dinner with Linda Morris and her husband for the first time, and we listened to them ignite within us a passion to know our ancestral story. It was from this dinner that my one-year pastoral anniversary message, Liberation and Genealogy, was born. So now I'm still feeling the tension of the darkness of the world in light of the murder of Kenan Anderson, as he was tased to death by police officers recently. And I still feel the tension of the reality that love is greater than hate. And the ways of Jesus which we practice are greater than empire. But I believe that the world bends towards justice. And the second coming of Christ will come with it, the rising again of Kenan Anderson, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and the millions of others who have died unjustly. I still feel the tension of the life and work of Dr. King because he was assassinated for saying the things that I'm going to say to you today. 
His words ring in my ears when he said, when our days become dreary with low hovering clouds and our nights become darker than a thousand midnights, let us remember that there is a great benign power in the universe whose name is God. And he is able to make a way out of no way and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. This is our hope for becoming better women and men. This is our mandate for seeking to make a world. I still feel the tension of that. I still feel the tension of rage, courage, confusion, uncertainty, and the responsibility of truth-telling, which sometimes feels like shouting in the fire. I still feel the tension of the reality that we are the continuation of a story Dr. King couldn't finish telling. Take a deep breath and let that sink in. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we commemorate the life and work of Dr. King, would you speak to us? Would you instill inside of us and give us a vision of what it means to have courage, to stand ten toes down in the face of white supremacy, opposition, and oppression? Would you give us a vision of what it means to shout in the fire? Amen. Well, Kendall and I spent Christmas and New Year's in Iowa in the frigid and bitterly cold winter of the Midwest, West Des Moines, Iowa, to be exact. And we took a couple books with us that Chris, our dear friend and co-pastor here, had given to us, one being called Shoutin' in the Fire by Dante Stewart, this one right here, this orange one. And this book essentially is a memoir and stirring meditation of being black and learning to love in a loveless anti-black world. Stewart uses his personal experiences as a vehicle to reclaim and reimagine spiritual virtues like rage, resilience, and remembrance. Kendall was so touched by this literature that he handed it to me and urged me to read chapter 6. At first, I was a little annoyed because he knows how many books I'm trying to read right now. And even with this information, he continues to urge me to read this chapter. So I take it, and as I look down upon the chapter title, that annoyance immediately turned into a deep curiosity. Chapter 6 in this book is called Rage. Now, this is not a word often talked about and somewhat culturally forbidden to be used to describe the way black people feel. And feels like the last puzzle piece that makes the, world, the whole thing come together. It just fits. And so I read on. And in this chapter, Dante Stewart shares an interesting story about how his black wife led their family in wokeness, but he himself did not have a personal epiphany until another black woman at his job gave him the harsh reality that he, as a complacent, comfortable, sleeping black man, had nothing to offer to black people. This confrontation was embarrassing, hurtful, but true and propelled Stewart into a journey of cultural self-reflection. And it was in these moments that he was given a book called Where Do We Go From Here? by Martin Luther King Jr. Stewart pens these words. 
He says, I walked upstairs and into my office and sat at my table. I pulled out the book and began to read. I read for hours. I read and read and read. I couldn't put it down. I lost track of time. I grabbed my pen and began underlining as much print could than the one the white Christians around me quoted about judging others by the content of their character. This was a different Martin from the terrible ways they talked about his Christianity and how he had been a Marxist and that he didn't believe like they believed and that he wasn't as important as we had thought. As I read, it was like reading the Gospels. I felt the power of Jesus, the news of the liberation of the oppressed. I read through King's critique of white people, their lack of re-education out of their racial ignorance, their myths of America as a Christian nation, their commitment to white supremacy. I read through his thoughts on black power, both his critique and praise, his radical imagination of black politics and the fierce urgency of liberation. I had gotten used to the people I was, I was already around, sanitizing King, making him the prophet of white gradualism and colorblind Christianity. Let's go back in time for a moment. April 3rd, 1968, Dr. King had come to Memphis, Tennessee twice to give aid to the Memphis sanitation workers' strike. On March 18th, he spoke to a rally before 15,000 people and vowed to return the following week to lead a march. James Lawson and King led a march on March 28th, which erupted in violence and was immediately called off. Against the advice of his colleagues in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, King returned to Memphis on April 3rd, 1968, seeking to restore nonviolence back to the movement in Memphis. This was the day before he was assassinated. Let's listen to this video clip of his final public words. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country. Maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they have committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech, somewhere I read, of the freedom of press, somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. And so just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. 
Like anybody, I would like to live. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. It's powerful. Just take a moment and just sit with his words. I couldn't help but wonder, what makes a human respond that way? What makes a human say the things that he said? Maybe ask yourself, what has made me the way that I am? Why do I stand in front of injustice and say what I say? Or why do I at times choose to shut my mouth in silence? What makes me who I am? I'm fascinated by Dr. King. So fascinated I took a look at his autobiography and couldn't help but ask these questions as I read about him. What made him that way? What made him unafraid of the dogs and the fire hoses? What made him unafraid of the difficult days ahead, which for him would become his own assassination? What made him both a pastor and an activist? What made him a preacher and a political figure? As we take these next few minutes and journey through his childhood and upbringing, I would invite you to keep asking these questions. So what about his family? Dr. King said he had a marvelous mother and father, could hardly remember a time that they had ever argued or had any great falling out. It was quite easy for him to lean more towards optimism than pessimism about human nature, mainly because of his childhood experiences. His father always had an interest in civil rights and was the president of the NAACP in Atlanta and always stood out in social reform. Before King was born, his father refused to ride the city buses after witnessing a brutal, brutal attack on a load of Negro passengers. King's dad led the fight in Atlanta to equalize teachers' salaries and was instrumental in the elimination of Jim Crow elevators in, in the courthouse. King said, I have never experienced the feeling of not having the basic necessities of life, living and budgeting. So for this reason, King grew up being provided for with the basic necessities with little strain. Although I came from a home of economic security and relative comfort, I could never get out of my mind the economic insecurity of many of my playmates and the tragic poverty of those living around me, King said. But what about his friends? At the age of six, one of his good friends had to go to a different school than him because he was white. 
Although before that time, they played together all the time, but now, all of a sudden, his white friend's dad forbid him to play with King. King was so hurt, he presented this scenario to his parents, which became such a teachable moment for King because they used it to help him see and understand the many other racial implications of white rage against black bodies. King said, I was greatly shocked And from that moment on, I was determined to hate every white person. As I grew older and older, this feeling continued to grow. That's interesting. What about his faith? Dr. King also had his own unique faith journey of belief in Jesus. He said, at the age of 13, I shocked my Sunday school class by denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I never regretted going to church until I passed through a state of skepticism in my second year of college. What about his dignity? Another significant moment in King's life was when he was asked to stand up on a bus and give his seat for a white person. He refused at first but was urged on by another black person and became somewhat forced to stand up in the aisle for 90 miles until he arrived to Atlanta. King said that night will never leave his memory. It was the angriest he had ever been in his entire life. He goes on to say, I remember seeing the Klan actually beat a Negro. I had passed spots where Negroes had been savagely lynched. All of these things did something to my growing personality, he said. After that summer in Connecticut, it was a bitter feeling going back to segregation. It was hard to understand why I could ride wherever I pleased on the train from New York to Washington and then had to change to a Jim Crow car at the nation's capital in order to continue the trip to Atlanta. He also said, during my student days, I read Henry David Thoreau, his essay on civil disobedience. And here... In this courageous New Englander's refusal to pay his taxes and his choice of jail, rather than support a war that would spread slavery's territory into Mexico, King made his first contact with the theory of nonviolent resistance. He said, I became convinced that non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. King said his call to the ministry was not a miraculous or supernatural something. On the contrary, it was an inner urge calling him to serve humanity. As I read and read through these significant moments of King's life and journey, I noticed a few patterns. His family and the community that surrounded him formed him. Social encounters he had as a little boy formed him. Struggles with his faith and belief in Jesus formed him. His dignity being stripped away by white supremacy formed him. Books from authors with new thoughts and teaching from Howard Thurman, Gandhi, and Henry David Thoreau taught him a new way. All of these things did something to his growing personality, as he said. All of these things grew inside of him what Dante Stewart calls rage. 
Dr. King came face to face with injustice at almost every stage of his life. As a boy at school, he saw the poverty of his friends. He was denied the right to play with his white friend. On the bus, he was classified as less than. While walking his walk, he started to see himself in the Negro that was being beaten by the KKK. ...from authors who learned how to take a nonviolent savior and make him a political way of being in the world. And the call to ministry urged King to rise up and be that person. Again... Take a moment and ask yourself, are the things forming my life, helping me see the injustice in the world? Are the things that are forming me, causing me to grow inside a holy rage? These moments made Martin Luther who he was. These experiences formed inside of him both a rage and a shout. Rage for the tolerance of a system that oppresses people and a shout of prophetic nonviolent resistance to participate in a system that needs a death sentence. So what about us? The books we read, the voices we listen to will form within us a rage and a shout or complacency and a hush. King saw the dignity gap and he wanted to close it. He saw the slums of Chicago and wanted to change it. He saw the underpaid jobs of Negroes compared to the wealthier, high-paying jobs of white people and wanted to do something about it. King was who he was because he saw and he refused to unsee. He was not blinded by the darkness but searched for the illuminating light in the darkness. And once he saw, he could not unsee. Are we so comfortable with our houses that we forget there are many who sleep without homes? Are we so comfortable with our jobs that we forget there are many who commit suicide because their jobs don't pay enough to live? Are we so comfortable with our cars that we forget there are those who have no transportation at all? Do we care enough to want to close the gap or are we so disconnected from humanity and the creator's desire to make all people fully human that we are content to leave injustice unjust? It was these gaps, these injustices, these wrongs not being made right that created inside of King a rage and a fire that could not be shut up. He could not ignore it. He could not throw a blanket over it. He could not turn a blind eye to it. He could not pretend it did not exist. King was so enraged that rage turned into a prophetic shout. In a world that is on fire, he shouted from within the fire that all wrongs must be made right. I don't know if you're hearing me today. Friends, I have reached the point in my life that I also am enraged with injustice. I am enraged when people cannot see injustice. I am enraged by the complacency of our culture that encourages us to sit in our comfort and not get up for the human right of all to be in comfort. A decent job is not a privilege, it's a human right. A roof over your head is not a privilege, it's a human right. 
Good health care is not a privilege, it's a human right. And if you stop seeing privileges as privileges, but as human rights, you will also get in the fight. For what did our creator create us for? To starve, to life in prison, to be sick and to die, to be driven to commit suicide because we cannot pay our bills? Why did our creator create us? And where are those creating beauty? Where are those creating peace? Where are those creating and wanting all to flourish? I too have rage. And like Dr. King, I'm standing ten toes down for the rest of my life in the fight for what is right. Are you going to be there with us? It was the rage over injustice. It was the shout of truth-telling and surrounding himself with like-minded people that gave King the strength to keep loving. In his book, Dante Stewart talks about how the prophet Nehemiah taught him about rage. And I think he says it so eloquently. He said, for the first time in my life, I realized that someone in the Bible was angry. My Christianity up until that point had neither room nor language to talk about the ways rage. Christians were not to be angry or enraged at the terrible things going on around us. Christians were meant to just love. And that love never meant marching in the streets, testifying in the halls of Congress, preaching audacious messages of liberation from pulpits. Calls for unity were an excuse for silence in the face of Christian complicity and abuse and justice and disrespect. Jesus had been weaponized to keep us silent about white supremacy and anti-blackness. That Jesus, Stewart said, oh, I had to get rid of him. The sanitized version of Nehemiah's story where the rage that he spoke of was seen more as a misunderstanding than a spiritual necessity. Oh, I had to get rid of that. I started to read his story as my story and my story as his story. The people in the Bible were not just distant figures. They were those who knew the struggle of oppression, fighting for your personhood and the ever complex relationship with God in the midst of struggle. I, like James Cone, began to read the Bible through the lens of black power, black arts and the black consciousness movement. Nehemiah, for me, had become not just a gifted spiritual leader, but a revolutionary. He had become my Fred Hampton. I pulled out my journal, grabbed my gel pen, and wrote, Nehemiah's rage set them free. As my mama would say, mm, 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 mm. After listening to Dante Stewart describe Nehemiah this way, I had to go back and actually reread Nehemiah because I was like, I ain't never heard anybody talk about him like that. And after rereading the book, I think I'm kind of over Nehemiah being used for church building campaigns. Like, I think there's something much more deeper than that. I never saw it before, but Nehemiah was enraged because of what the oppressors had done to his ancestors. He petitioned to the king for supplies. He then got permits that he needed to rebuild the wall. He gathered workers and volunteers and then delegated that each have a section of responsibility to rebuild. 
He wasn't trying to build a wall and just leave it at that. Nor was he trying to build a $4.2 million building with smoke machines and lights. He was trying to restore something that was so much deeper than that. Nehemiah is teaching us what to do with our rage. Nehemiah is showing us how to organize. Nehemiah is making, a, making it plain and clear that the rebuilding of what oppression has torn down takes all of us doing our part to rebuild. With his rage, he built something up. He restored something. And with our rage, we too can rebuild what white supremacy has torn down. Dante Stewart had rage. Dr. King had a rage. Nehemiah had a rage. And all of us in this room are filled with some version of rage at injustice in the world. And we are gathered here because we believe that practicing the ways of Jesus together as a multi-ethnic family of God is what will rebuild the world. So every time I open my mouth, I can promise you this. You're going to hear me talk about injustice. <laughs> You're going to hear me talk about Jesus. You're going to hear me talk about liberation because we are facing a system day in and day out that has been in existence for over 400 years. And so the only way we can build something different is if we prophetically speak fire from a heart of rage and then organize to build something different. Let's spend our time building a world of love from a heart that is enraged at oppression, which is the very heartbeat of God, expressed in the way that Jesus moved throughout the world. And you can come up. As we conclude in the commemoration of the life and work of Dr. King, if you feel comfortable, just close your eyes with me for a moment. And take, breathe in, breathe out. Lord Jesus, speak to us. Breathe in, breathe out. Lord, what do you want us to know? Breathe in. Breathe out. Lord, what do you want us to do? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our world is on fire and our hearts are enraged. Give us the courage to tell the truth. Give us the courage to walk in the ways of Jesus. Give us the courage to rebuild what white supremacy has torn down. Help us to see and take note of our own life story. Help us to pay attention to the things that are forming us. May we be formed to be like Jesus, to be like the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and may we spend this next year 10 toes down joining those who have been shouting in the fire.
Amen. If this message encouraged you, let us know or share it with someone you know. For more information about Kaleo, visit kaleophx.com or follow us on social media at kaleophx.